Open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to read and preach verses 33 through 36 this morning, finishing up Romans 11. At this point in the letter, Paul, as it were, stops what he's doing and stands up and sings the doxology, praising God for all he's done to save his people from their sin. Paul writes this doxology or word of praise to God, really in response to everything he's written in chapters 1 through 11 up to this point in the letter. He sort of steps back from it all and takes it all in and responds in humble, joyful praise of God. He pens these profound words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about God's wisdom and ways and also man's finitude and limitation and God's greatness and glory. Those are the three movements in the passage and the three points of the sermon. And as we look at these verses together this morning, I think our goal should be this, that our view of ourselves would shrink and that our view of God would expand. So much of what goes wrong both inside us and around us I think stems from having too big a view of ourselves and too small a view of our God. Like the excellent book by Ed Welch titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. We all struggle with this as Christians. Our vision gets distorted. But when we encounter a passage like this one, God is gracious to correct our vision. God is gracious to deflate our pride in ourselves and to inflate our praise of him. And so as we come to these verses together, let's, all of us, allow God's word to shrink us down to our right size and to expand and inflate and enlarge our view of him, our praise of him for who he is and for what he's done through Christ. And let's Let's pray for that now together and then we'll begin. God, we confess to you the sinfulness of our distorted vision. Seeing ourselves as big and you as small. We confess to you the ugly pride and the inexcusable unbelief that distort our vision. Please forgive us. Please cleanse us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray too that you'd be gracious to correct our vision by your word this morning. Shrink us down to our right size and expand and enlarge our view of you. Help us to respond like Paul did in this doxology, praising you for who you are and what you've done for us through Christ. And we pray for all these things in his name. Amen. Romans 11, reading verses 33 through 36. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom 
and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. As you can see in your sermon notes there, we're going to look first at what Paul says about God's wisdom and ways in verse 33, then at what he says about man's finitude and limitation in verses 34 and 35, and finally at what he says about God's greatness and glory in verse 36. And kids, remind you that the key words for kids are at the top there for you to listen for as you listen to God's word. So first, God's wisdom and ways. Verse 33, you can see, begins with the word, oh, an expression of emotion on Paul's part. In light of all he's said up to this point about God's plan to save his people from their sins and in light of what he's about to say about God's wisdom and ways. He says, oh, and we should note that this is not a dispassionate observation of God's wisdom and ways. Rather, it's a passionate adoration of God for his wisdom and ways. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul feels strongly about what he's saying, judging by his words. This is a passionate adoration of God for his wisdom and ways. You know, emotion isn't everything in the Christian life, but neither is it nothing. We know we can't rely on our emotions, but of course that doesn't mean we should disregard them. We want to love the Lord our God with all our heart as well as our mind. Like Paul here, we want to respond to all that God has done to save his people from their sins with an O, with emotion, with strong feeling, with passionate adoration of God. That is what we desire. Now, our emotions, like an old guitar, are sometimes out of tune. They're not what they should be. They're not what we want them to be. And even we find that when they're in tune, they don't actually hold their tune for very long. Given the fact that the circumstances of our lives, the humidity of our lives, if you will, around us are always changing. But God's grace and God's truth are what tune our hearts to sing his praise, as we sang earlier. God is the one who can tune our hearts when they're out of tune. So if your emotions are out of tune this morning, if you don't feel what you want to feel in response to these wonderful truths, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to help you walk by faith and not by feel. But also ask him to tune your feelings, to sanctify them 
Ask him to give you a heart like Paul's heart expressed in these verses. Pray that his grace and his truth would tune your heart to sing his praise. In the first sentence, following the first word, O, Paul talks about God's wisdom. And in the second sentence, he talks about God's ways. And we'll look more closely at both of those in turn for a few minutes. Paul says, O, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. O, the depth of those attributes of God, Paul exclaims. We could certainly say, could we not, oh, the shallowness of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of man, even for all of our wealth, even for all of our experience, even for all of our learning, oh, the shallowness of our riches and wisdom and knowledge compared to the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. And it's not just like, Ours is sort of the shallow end of the pool, whereas God's is the deep end of the pool. No, ours is more like the water you stand in at the beach when you first walk up to the water to get your feet wet and to feel what the temperature's like. Whereas God's is like the Mariana Trench at the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean, almost seven miles down. That's how much deeper God's riches and wisdom and knowledge are compared to ours. And actually, the the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge is infinite. It's immeasurable. That should humble us, shrink us down to our right size. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches... Of God, He speaks in chapter 2, verse 4, of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. That is good news. He speaks in Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 8, of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Or Philippians 4, 19, a wonderful promise. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So if you've ever read or seen The Hobbit, picture those cavernous treasure chambers in the lower halls of the lonely mountain that are full of gold and precious gems and all kinds of treasures, including, of course, the Arkenstone. Vast treasure, mountains of gold coins and precious gems. All that treasure is like a few pennies in a piggy bank compared to the riches of our God His riches are unsearchable riches. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. God's wisdom is perfect. 
and impeccable and immutable and reliable. God's knowledge is infinite and intimate and accurate and eternal. And Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Kids, if you were to visit one of the largest libraries in the world, say the British Library in London or maybe the Library of Congress in D.C., and you were to stand there in front of all those books, almost 200 million books in each of those libraries, how do you think you would feel standing there in front of all those books? You might feel kind of small, wouldn't you? You might feel like your knowledge was pretty small compared to all those books, compared to that vast library. Well, I bet that's how that vast library feels before God, who knows everything. He knows every single word and every single book and every single library in all the world. He knows everything there is to know. He knows all. He's omniscient, all-knowing. God is all-wise, and he is all-knowing. And so Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He has wisdom and knowledge, but he also deploys that wisdom and knowledge in his actions in the world, in his judgments and his ways. That's what Paul talks about in the second sentence in verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Perhaps Isaiah 55 is coming to your mind, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Sometimes I think we struggle with the fact that we can't fully understand the ways of God, why certain things happen in our lives, why he's ordained particularly frowning providences in our lives. But this verse reminds us that his judgments are unsearchable. We can't search into them and fully understand them. This verse reminds us that his ways are inscrutable. We can't scrutinize them or analyze them. They're unfathomable by us. We can't fathom the depth of his ways. And you know that makes sense if we remember that he's God. 
Our youngest children can't always understand why their parents say no to some things, sometimes. And that's hard for them, but it makes sense that they can't always understand, right? Because they're a young child and not a grown-up parent. And naturally, there are things they don't understand yet, but they will as they grow up. And if that's the case between a young child and her parents, how much more is it the case between us and the infinite God? Of course, his ways are inscrutable and unsearchable and unfathomable. He's God, and we are but men. He's the creator, and we are but creatures. But also, just like with the young child and her parents, Even though she doesn't always understand them, she does know them and she knows that she can trust them. She knows she can trust that they love her and are saying no for her good, just so and even more so, even though we don't always understand the ways of God, we know God. We know we can trust God. We can trust that he loves us and is working all things. Especially that thing right in front of us that is particularly difficult. He's working all things for our good in Christ. Job chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. As for me, I would seek God and to God I would commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Maybe there's something going on in your life right now where you're not quite sure what God is up to. What is he doing? Why why has he ordained these things? You might feel a bit like that young child who was told no by her parents and she couldn't understand why. And that was hard. Maybe life is hard for you right now. Well, let me encourage you, if that's the case, to let this verse, this truth, hold you up this morning. Keep you going today. Let it tune your heart. Let these truths sink in and take root in your soul. It's okay that you don't fully understand the ways of God. It's hard, but it's okay because his ways are unsearchable, inscrutable. But he knows what he's doing. You can trust him that he's working all things for your good in Christ. He has a depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge that is infinite and immeasurable and unsearchable and unchangeable. And he is using his infinite wisdom and knowledge to work all things for your good in Christ. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For... Paul says in verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You see the logic there? 
His judgments are unsearchable by us and his ways are inscrutable by us for or because we don't fully know his mind. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? As one author put it, no finite human being has enough wisdom to discern God's mind or to give him counsel on how he should run the world. No finite human being has enough wisdom to discern God's mind or to give him counsel on how he should run the world. So after extolling God's wisdom and ways, Paul underscores man's finitude and limitation. So this is our second main point now, man's finitude and limitation. Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14 says... Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Questions with obvious answers. 1 Corinthians 2, 16 for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Paul's saying, of course, no man has known the mind of God. No mere creature has been his counselor. Now, of course, we do know some of the mind of the Lord because he's revealed some of his mind both in creation and in the Bible in the book of nature and the book of scripture, in general revelation and in special revelation. Rocks and trees and skies and seas came out of the mind of God. The book of Romans came out of the mind of God. So we can see something of his mind in his world and we can read something of his mind in his word. But those things tell us just a part of the mind of God. Nobody knows all the mind of God. And nobody's been his counselor. Though I think we've probably all tried at some point. You seek counsel when you don't know what to do and you need advice. You go to a counselor when you need help. God doesn't need help. God doesn't need advice. No one has been his counselor. Again, as I quoted earlier, no finite human being has enough wisdom to discern God's mind or to give him counsel on how he should run the world. Or to say it another way, none of us could have written a better story than the one God wrote. No character in a story ever said to the author of the story, hey, that's not fair. I don't like what you've written here. Let me see that pen. I'm going to write something better. Of course, no character has ever jumped off the page of the story and said that to the author of the story. Neither should we say that to God. 
the author of our story, the story of the world. There are hard things in the story he's written, to be sure. There are bad things and sad things, like there are in all good stories. But the story he's written, it's perfect and cannot be improved upon. Not by adding anything or subtracting anything. And we can trust the author and seek to be a humble and godly character in every chapter. In verse 35, the question is, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In Job 41, verse 11, God says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Who has given a gift to God that God might repay him? Nobody. God is self-existent and all-sufficient. He doesn't depend on us, and he doesn't need us. We are dependent on him. We need him. But he doesn't depend on us or need us. God doesn't owe us anything. He's not indebted to us. We owe everything to him, but he doesn't owe anything to us. What do we have that we did not receive from God? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Everything we have, we have received from God. But what does God have that he has received from us? Nothing. Because he's perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Nobody has. For, Paul says in verse 36, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. No one can give a gift to God for or because from God are all things. Who can give a gift to someone who already has everything? If from God and through God and to God are all things, who can give God anything? Paul focuses our attention here on God's greatness and glory here in verse 36. So this is our third and final main point now. God's greatness and glory. His greatness is expressed in the first sentence of the verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. One author put it well when he said, God is the source of all things, the means by which all things are accomplished, and the goal of all things. See how that tracks with the verse here? God is the source of all things. From him are all things. God is the means by which all things are accomplished. Through him are all things. 
And God is the goal of all things. To him are all things. He is the fountain and the stream and the ocean. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. There's a wonderful statement in the Heidelberg Catechism about God's providence. And it says this, that God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's how great God is. He's not just the source and the means and the goal of some things, religious things perhaps. No, he's the source and the means and the goal of all things. And that is why to him belongs the glory forever. That's why Paul says in the second sentence of verse 36, to him be glory forever. Amen. Since to God belongs the greatness described in the first sentence, to God belongs the glory ascribed in the second sentence. The one who has all the greatness is the one who receives all the glory. And it's not us, of course. It's God. Sometimes we think we're great, don't we? Sometimes we want the glory for ourselves, sadly. Sometimes we forget that we're the moon, not the sun. Like in the wonderful children's book, Fool Moon Rising, we boast in our light forgetting that our light is really the sun's light shining on us and in us. Our job is not to say, look at me, look how bright I am, but to say, look to the sun. It's his light you're seeing. Our job is to reflect the light of the sun so that the glory goes to the sun, not to us, not to the moon. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
in heaven. The glory goes to God because the light people see in us is his light shining in us. Our chief end is to glorify God, is to live for God and to show the glory of God to others. To reflect the glory of God in our character and in the way we live our lives so that to him would be the glory forever. That's what we want as Christians when all is said and done, isn't it? When you remove all the layers of sin and selfishness because of the work of the Spirit, the regenerating work of God, deep down, that's what we desire. It's our hope. It's our confidence. It's the truth that we rest in come what may, that God will be glorified in all things, that to him will be the glory forever. That's what the Bible says. Just listen to these verses. Romans sixteen twenty seven, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Philippians 4.20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever, amen. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. 1 Peter 4.11, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18 To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And lastly, Jude, verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Before all time and now, and forever. Amen. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Life in this fallen world is hard sometimes. The Bible says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But at the end of the day, this is all our joy, all our contentment, all our satisfaction. This is the pillow that we rest our heads on, that to God will be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we praise you as Paul did for the depth and the riches of your wisdom and ways. And we praise you for your greatness from you and through you and to you are all things. And therefore, to you belongs the glory. And we thank you for the hope 
and the joy and the confidence we can have knowing that to you will be the glory both now and forever. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.